Radio. I'm your host, Alejandro Rojas, and I have with me, fresh from Roswell, Jason McClellan. How are you, buddy? I am fresh from Roswell. That's how I'm doing. Nice. Is that a good thing? Is that a good? I think it is. It probably is. Good, clean, fresh feeling. Yes. And in Ro- Roswell, fresh. Yeah. Uh, and in celebration of us visiting Roswell, Google's decided, I think specifically because we were there. To do it like this Roswell thing on their site. That's yeah. Cool. They've got a Roswell Google Doodle. It's a little interactive game thing they put up to commemorate the anniversary of the Roswell incident. Yeah, or pretty cool. They decided to choose the eighth, so they kind of put it up last night. They've had it up for a little while now, but uh, certainly made a lot of headlines, and I think people are probably spending a lot of time wasting their day playing that little thing. Right. Yeah, I'm gonna waste a little bit of my day and a little bit to finish looking at it. Yeah, I haven't I haven't done the whole thing. I just kind of clicked around on it for a while. Kind of fun. Well, our guest today, uh, kind of fun topic for people, is uh, Marshall Clarfield, and uh, he's going to be speaking at the Contact in the Desert, which is an event coming up soon here uh, at Joshua Tree. And this looks to be kind of fun. They're going to have a lot of people out there, and we got one of their their speakers, Marshall, on the line to talk. He was an engineer, and uh, now that he's retired, he's focusing on his interest in Zechariah Sitchin's work, and in particular, the Anunnaki. Kind of a fun name, but uh, that these essentially extraterrestrial beings used to interact with uh, Earth, is how they feel. And he's going to tell us all about uh, what he thinks uh, adds legitimacy to this whole idea and uh, some of his ideas of ancient places and how they may have been, well, his belief that they are Anunnaki sites. Anunnaki, there we go. Good job. Yeah, sites and uh, why he thinks that. So kind of interesting. So we'll be talking to him in a minute, and uh, that should be good. But before we do, let's talk about some of the news in the last week. Actually, it's been a couple of weeks because we've been all over the place. We were in North Carolina last weekend, and now we're here, and there's been lots of UFO news. And why don't you tell us about that, Jason? Well, I'm not going to tell you about all that, but I'll pick one, yes. And uh, so... I'm going to go with something here that you know I find personally exciting, and, and you and I have talked about this before, Alejandro, and that's celebrities who mention UFOs or extraterrestrials and their personal beliefs, or they post things about it online. And last week, Russell Crowe, again in the news for tweeting about UFOs and alien disclosure. And 
This actually happened several weeks ago. It happened uh, back in the end of June, but uh, I forget which media outlet it was, decided to do a story about it. And then uh, you did a story about it, Alejandro. And, yeah, Russell Crowe on his Twitter account posted, Breaking UFO Alien Disclosure by Canadian Minister of Defense. And he posted the video of Paul Hellyer from the uh, citizen hearing in Washington, D.C. And so that was interesting to see Russell Crowe post that. And, you know, we get a little bit of flack when we post stories about celebrities. But you and I have mentioned this time and time again, Alejandro. Uh, you know, I, I think these things are important because they do reach into the mainstream public. They get the mainstream's attention and not just people who, who specifically follow news about UFOs. This reaches the mainstream public and gets them interested and hopefully gets them start asking questions and looking into the topic for themselves. But on our site alone, I mean, just in a matter of days, we've had thousands of people look at this article and it, it shows that people are interested in what celebrities have to say and whether or not they're worth listening to. They are listened to. They're in the public's eye. So when they talk about UFOs, I think it's great because it gets people talking and, and gets more attention on UFOs and hopefully encourages people to dig deeper. Right. Yeah, I think it's really interesting and, and uh, it just shows, yeah, the taboo is kind of going away. I think where people are feeling more comfortable talking about their belief in UFOs. And they, they, they should be comfortable. I'm, I'm comfortable talking about it, aren't you? Very comfortable. Yeah, especially when I'm in a nice, comfortable chair and have uh, something nice to drink. Yeah, it's very comfortable. Mm -hmm. I'm very comfortable right now in, in my nice uh, business office chair here, laid back, talking UFOs. Yeah. No problem. More comfortable than I was uh, in the car for 10 hours when we were driving to Roswell, but... <laughs> right, exactly. So yeah, so hopefully that'll be more of a just not a big deal. Where yeah, I think I think we're going going that way, and it's good to see. Mm -hmm. And it's uh, it's interesting to think about stars, you know, going to meet at the bar with their little star buddies and being like, yeah, what do you think about UFOs? Pretty cool, huh? I think it's becoming more and more a, a common topic of discussion for those guys. It's great to see. Mm -hmm. Well, Alejandro, out of two weeks worth of news, what are you going to pick for today? I am going to pick uh, our story about Bob Lazar because this is kind of interesting and uh, a lot of people have picked up and been reading it and, you know, I had contacted Bob Lazar's people to see if maybe he'd want to come to our conference and talk again. I knew it was a long shot because he hasn't come out and spoken uh, for a long time and for those who might not be familiar, he's a guy who came out uh, and said he worked at Area 51 and... Uh, this was in 1989, and that uh, he had work on back-engineered spacecraft that he knew was extraterrestrial, and he told his buddies and got in trouble for that, essentially, and uh, was kicked to the curb. Um, so it's been many, many years, and he has not really talked about his experiences. He's been laying low. He's got this website where he sells lots of different science material, and uh, it's his goal, it even says on the site, the goal of the site is to sell science stuff to schools. So schools do more hands-on science experiments uh, because maybe when you were a kid, you remember those, and I certainly do. Those are some of the fun, exciting things you do that get you interested in science and physics, and uh, he wants hopes that continues, so that's why he started this company. But I, I tried to contact him, and they told me that he doesn't talk on UFOs anymore. 
and that they're trying to not rock the boat because they have military contracts and they do that I guess Lazard does some consulting with Raytheon and uh, I think a lot of we've gotten a lot of comments where everybody feels that that's kind of interesting given that he's allegedly this big whistleblower. It is interesting and it's kind of cool to I mean it was so cool when you got that that uh contact back from them to actually hear something about Lazar and hear what he's up to and yeah there are people who have you know there's there's questions as to his credentials or his scientific background and yet now he's doing scientific contracting for the government which is kind of interesting or Raytheon but uh yeah weird stuff before you go uh, of course, we just were in Roswell, and you got to go to the wreckage site. Uh, I had been there in the past, but uh, what did you think? I'll tell you what, Alejandro. It was terribly fun going out to the debris field um, just because it's it's such a significant location in, uh, in the whole UFO world. But uh, even more special for me was getting to go out there with Jesse Marcel Jr., somebody personally involved in the incident. Mm-hmm. So that was very cool. And with our buddy Frank Kimbler, who's done a lot of research out there. So going out to the debris field with those two guys was a really incredible experience. Right. We've used some of our footage we got a few years ago when some of us went out there and um, people can see that on our UFO or Open Minds Investigates first video. But uh, the site because some people will ask, I know, there are several different sites. Which one? We went to the one, uh, the Marcel site, essentially, where Jesse Marcel says he went. Um, and this is by the shed where Jesse Marcel went and looked at the material for the first time and then was taken out to uh, the debris field itself. So that's the one that we're looking at. Um, it's the same one that uh, the Roswell Diggs was at. Um, so you get an idea of what it was like out there, and it, it's kind of pretty country how you can see forever out there. It is. It's interesting because you know the trip out there. It's some very very ugly desert, and it has to be pretty ugly for me to say that. You know, I'm a desert boy. I live in the desert, and I think a lot of desert is quite beautiful. But this is very bland, ugly desert. Heading out there, but then you turn down a road, and then all of a sudden the desert changes, and it starts getting really beautiful. And just going out there, you're in the middle of nowhere. It's so quiet, and yeah, it's kind of a surreal experience. Mm-hmm. So a lot of fun. Yeah. So and check out the website and our Facebooks because we're posting um, stuff uh, constantly on our trip. Uh, feel free to interact. I know many of you have. Thank you for that. It's a lot of fun talking to y'all. Any other closing comments? No, I, I just will say that uh, again on on Roswell comments that as you mentioned, we've got some great footage out there in the area of the debris field and uh, in our magazine too we've got some amazing photos some of the best photos I've seen certainly of uh, yeah you know the out by the Foster Ranch where Mac Brazel brought the the wreckage and those so those best photos I've ever seen and those were taken by our own Maureen Ellsbury so mm-hmm. kudos to her well and uh it's a good point that if you want to be caught up on Roswell and some of the best evidence uh, that our Roswell issue of the magazine has a lot of those stories. In fact, some stories from some of the main lead researchers. So a lot of the most compelling evidence and eyewitness testimony. And I think I'm biased, absolutely, but I really do think that uh, that magazine is a great resource um, for Roswell information. Mm-hmm. 
I would agree, my friend. I would agree. You're not biased at all either. But. Right. <laughs> all right. Thanks, man. You bet, man. All right. Let's talk to Marshall Clarkfield about the Anunnaki. I am here with Marshall Clarkfield. Welcome, Marshall. Thank you, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me. All right, so this ought to be really interesting. And, of course, uh, I should say I got your contact information from Contact in the Desert, where you're going to be speaking here in just a few weeks. Yes, uh, August the 9th at Uh Joshua Joshua Tree. It's going to be a grand gathering of the clan. I think it's uh, amazing they've collected so many uh, top-flight people in our field. Hopefully it won't be too warm, because that's not too far from here. And uh, we're in the Phoenix area, and it's like... 115 today, I think. Uh, okay, I'm in La Quinta, California, which is not too far uh-huh. west of you, and we got the same temperature range. So I'm hoping also that. Um, do you plan to come? I don't think I'll be able to make it actually. Okay. Yeah. So that ought to be fun. But let's get into you and your work. So you have written uh, some books and you uh, research sort of picking up where uh, Zachariah Sitchin left off, and you're looking at the Anunnaki and uh, some of those legends and mythologies and drawing that to a possible actual extraterrestrial visitation many, many hundreds of thousands of years ago. That's correct. Uh, Zachariah Sitchin and I had a 10-year relationship. We um, talked about many things, and we can get into that later, but what I've decided to do as an honor to him and his work. I've kind of become his disciple. I'm the lone voice out there right now that I think that is sticking and adhering absolutely down the line to everything that Zechariah wrote and researched. In fact, I'm expanding on what he wrote. Uh, I've discovered a lot of new things that I wish I had a chance to discuss with him. But since he's no longer with us, I've, I've picked up the torch and you can approach me in that fashion. Okay. Well, great. Let's get into, before we get into some of those details, kind of your background and then how you discovered uh, Sitchin and his work and a little bit about him, and then we'll get into more of the, the meat of your your work there. But uh, for you, when did you begin to get interested in this topic? Okay. This is going to amaze you, but uh, I went to Caltech in 1947. I was a freshman. I spent four years there and graduated in 1951. And as you know, in 1947, uh, Roswell happened. And we were right next door in Pasadena, California. And uh, the word UFO came into our language in the dormitories. And that's all we did is kick around UFOs. And I was very blessed at the age of 19 to have two professors there at Caltech. Uh, One was Richard Feynman in physics and the other was Linus Pauling in chemistry, and I had the good fortune to be thinking about why the scientific knowledge in the Bible was so accurate to what they were teaching us. In other words, there were so many parallels that I was seeing between Genesis and what the scientists were telling us about the creation of our solar system that I wondered, how did those ancients 5,000 years ago uh, have all that scientific knowledge? And In fact, I asked uh, Richard Feynman, do you believe in UFOs? And he gave me a beautiful answer, which I have replicated in my first book, uh, Adam, the Missing Lincoln. And then a month later, I asked Linus Pauling if he believed in God. Now, believe it or not, in those days, that was a long time ago, uh, many, many moons. 
I was interested in where we came from. So that's what it started. Mm -hmm. Now, Richard Feynman, did he essentially tell you he did believe in UFOs or he was just open to the idea? Or oh, Let me give you his answer because uh, I, I, I think this is the most interesting answer of any of the questions I've ever asked anybody. I said, Dr. Feynman, do you believe in UFOs? He said, Klarfeld, I believe in the law of probability of the billions of stars in the Milky Way galaxy and the billions and billions of stars in the universe. The law of probability tells me that there are 10,000 solar systems exactly like ours, and they're all older. We're the youngest solar system. He says, if any of them survived their space age, they could have visited us. Yes, I believe in UFOs. Now, it took me 60 years to figure out what he meant by <laughs> survived their space age. And uh, right now, I think we're at the tipping point in our civilization. We have <clears throat> space age capability, we have atomic weapons, and we have missiles and we're on the brink of either destroying ourselves or going out and becoming a peaceful member of the federation of the universe so um that answer i published in adam the missing link and it's then, really interesting you say this just because uh i saw a speaker an astrophysicist um jeffrey bennett this weekend and he said the same thing in fact we'll see what you think of this he thinks the next 50 to 100 years is like the the seminal point that if we make it Past this fifty hundred years, then we'll probably make it for good. If not, then then we're cooked. Yeah, we're cooked. And in all of my my lectures, I, I present the story, and at the end of the lecture, I tell the audience, I says, you know, this is a very crucial time in our history, and unless we understand where we came from and what our history is and the mistakes that were made in the past, if we don't repeat them, we're cooked. Mm -hmm. and I, I sincerely believe that we need to get the story out so that the vast majority of the humans on this planet understand where we came from and what our obligations are to preserve and save this planet because it's our home. And if we destroy it, uh, you know, the end of uh, this particular experiment of humanity is, is over. Right. Yeah. Interesting. Um, and then I, I think you were going on to talk about Linus Pauling. Oh, yeah. Linus Pauling was my chemistry professor, fascinating uh, teacher. And I asked him, I said, Dr. Pauling, do you believe in God? Now, this is the answer he gave me. He said, Klarfeld, our discipline is to explain everything in the universe back to the beginning of the Big Bang time, beginning of time. He says, if you were to ask me what there was a millisecond before the Big Bang, we don't have an answer. If you want to believe in God, please do, because we don't know what there was a millisecond before the Big Bang. Now, that answer is the only answer in my entire lifetime that explains the unknown. And in fact, the Anunnaki, in my research, had a deity they called the creator of all. And obviously they came up against the same question. What the, what was there before? And by the way, who created the Anunnaki? You know, these are questions that Zachariah and I discussed many times. Right. Um, when you mentioned earlier that you... Because I think this is an interesting concept. You saw in the Bible information that was similar to what you were learning. Do you have an example of that? Yes, I'll give you the classic example, one of many. that I've. Uh, the creation story in Genesis is in uh, a six-day period. And it says on the fourth day, which is kind of late in the creation process, he created the greater light of the day and the lesser light of the night, which was the sun and the moon. And we knew from our studies at Caltech 
that a solar system, in order to become viable, the sun had to eventually ignite. In other words, all kinds of things were going on, separations and so forth. But uh, when the sun ignites, uh, you, you've got a solar system. I said, well, how the hell did they know that it took four days into six for that to happen? Because it always happens in a late period. And it, it kind of piqued my curiosity. And the other thing that I, I pursued was, in the story of Genesis, was the uh, 6-4. Are you familiar with Genesis 6-4? Probably you've read it, but you don't know which one it is. It's the Nephilim were upon the earth in those days. The sons of gods came to earth and mated with the daughters of man and created the giants of old, the men of renown. Now, that's in the Bible. Mm-hmm. Who the hell were the Nephilim? You know, no no place else has it ever explained who the Nephilim, but these are the sons of gods, plural. And I said, wow, you know, something's going on. And I wanted to know where we came from. Now, that was over 60 years ago, and I uh, had many things happen in my lifetime until about 15 years ago I met Zachariah Sitchin on the phone. And I read one of his books, and I was very curious about his theory, and, and we talked and chatted and, and developed a, a 10-year relationship uh, which eventually culminated in our meeting in New York on the 30th anniversary of the publication of his first book, The Twelfth Planet. And during that time, I became more and more convinced that he had the Rosetta Stone. He had uncovered, by translating the cuneiform tablets, what was a database on which I could rely my research. And I've mm-hmm. since then just gone forward uh, researching all of his works, which I found to be fascinating and very difficult to read. He was a scholar, and he wrote in a terrifically precise language. Have you read any of his books? Yes. Okay. They're tough. Mm-hmm. You really have to want to read them to understand what he's talking about. So I told him early on, I said, you know, I'd like to do a Life magazine format of, of your information. He said, okay. He says, fine, as long as you say, by permission from Zachariah Sitchin, I said, I will do that. So the first book, Adam the Missing Link, is an eight and a half by 11 kind of life magazine story. It's got over 100 pictures in it. And the pictures tell the story. I just kind of fill in the blanks with with a little bit of my uh, writing. But what I wanted people to understand in an easy format was what this story really means to us as a civilization and as a, as a uh, uh, future responsibility to continue humanity. Mm-hmm. In the universe, because it's our responsibility. In five billion years, our sun is going to go supernova, and that's the end of our planet. So I think our responsibility, and maybe our destiny, as Zachary would say, our destiny, is to find Earth too, and continue the process. In other words, to repeat exactly what happened to us, and carry on uh, this beautiful uh, humanity that we are. Mm-hmm. Now with. Sitchin, so he he worked on the Sumerian cuneiform, and and would you agree a, a lot of seems a lot of the biblical stories come from the Sumerian Absolutely. stories. Absolutely. For instance, mm-hmm. the classic example is uh, Noah and the Ark. The Noah's Ark story is the eleventh tablet of the Epic of Gilgamesh, which is a twelve tablet uh, cuneiform uh, book. And uh, my second book is called Gilgamesh Ten is a screenplay replication exactly of the Epic of Gilgamesh. And on the, when we get to the 11th tablet, which is the flood story, we tell it as it was written in the cuneiform, which is a little different than in the Bible. 
And <clears throat> I was always curious as how they got all those animals on that one boat. It mm-hmm. didn't make sense to me as a, as an engineer and a scientist. So those answers were revealed by Zachariah's translations of uh, Gilgamesh. And I think that people need to know. So we've written it in a screenplay format, and we want to make it into a major movie one day. And right now we're doing a documentary film, which I sent you a little sizzle reel of. I don't know mm-hmm. if you have to look at that. I did. Okay, when that's done, it'll be an hour and a, 20 minutes maybe. We hope to raise enough money, uh, get that thing around the world at all the film festivals. And uh, from that, those seed money, we will then try to produce Gilgamesh 10. That's our long-term game plan. Mm-hmm. So with Sitchin's work and his translation, do you believe then they are more of a one uh, or a uh, blow-by-blow historical record? Uh, or do you think maybe there are some nuances, uh, mythological nuances in there? Very good question. I asked Zachariah one time, I said, you know, in my uh, studies of history, it's always the victors who write the, the history of what happened, and we get their side of the story. And if the Anunnaki were writing these cuneiform tablets for the Samarians, they're giving them the, their scribes the information and they translate it into the cuneiform text. We've got a database that they wrote. And I said to myself, to Zachariah, do you think they were spinning us? And he said, Marshall, the record speaks for itself. So I've had questions in my mind, for instance, about the mutiny. Was the mutiny a cover story for something they really wanted to do? And all that gold, they they were mining our gold for 200,000 years before they created us. And I said to myself, you know, what the hell were they doing with all that gold? They didn't need that much gold to close the ozone leak of their plant. There had to be another use for it. So I said, Zachariah, what do you think of uh, white powder gold, the non-atomic gold? Marshall, I don't get into that. That's what he said. Hmm. So my take, just like what you asked me, is yes, that's the database that I base everything on. Those are the stories that we have as the written word. But you need to question sometimes whether what we were being given was really what was going on. That's the same as you do in all research, all mm-hmm. things except the hard facts. See, I told Zachariah, I said, look, I'm going to concentrate on the physical evidence that's here on this planet, the things that we can't explain, the mysteries, the the stone icons, the Machu Picchus, the Great Pyramids, uh, the zigzag walls, all this stuff that's been a mystery, uh, anger what? I said, I want to find out if there's a connection. And last year... I did. I made the connection in my third book, The Anunnaki Were Here. I published what I think is a living book. In fact, I'm adding chapters to it every year. This year I've added uh, stuff I discovered in France when I was over there this summer. Last year I added the uh, Greek amphitheater, which I discovered wasn't built by the Greeks. And this year I discovered that the Roman, one of the Roman aqueducts wasn't built by the Romans. And this is stuff that is solid, you can get your hands on it, you can study it, and you can say, okay, how was this done? Who did it? And was it possible for the Romans to have done it? Was it possible for the Incas to have done it? Was it possible for the Egyptians to have done it? And my answer to all three of those is no. Mm-hmm. Those are structures that are here that we can examine and we can conclusively say, that isn't possible for that civilization with their tools and their uh abilities to have created them. So this is the evidence that's being gathered in the uh, the book, The Anunnaki Were Here, 
that I think conclusively proves there was an advanced extraterrestrial civilization here on this planet that colonized this planet 400 plus thousand years ago, and they left the physical evidence. Baalbek. You're familiar with Baalbek? No. You're not familiar with Baalbek, Lebanon? Okay. Look it up on Google. You go to Baalbek, Lebanon, and you will see a platform that's 5 million square foot and it's mentioned in the Epic of Gilgamesh as the landing platform. And in the northwest corner of this platform, there are three of the largest stones ever quarried on the planet Earth. They are 64 feet long, they're 14 feet tall, and they're 10 foot thick. Or they're 14 feet thick and 10 foot tall, and they weigh 1,200 tons each. Mm. And they're raised from the quarry a half a mile away up to this hilltop lifted 36 feet in the air and placed end-to-end without mortar, perfectly fitting. Now, 1,200 tons is equal to three 747s fully loaded with baggage, gas, and passengers. To lift that weight, we can't do that. Mm -hmm. The Romans couldn't have done it. So the question is, who built Baalbek? Who built the landing platform? And if the story in Gilgamesh of the, the uh, he sees the rockets taking off from this place. It was the most holy place in the Roman Empire, and they built on top of the platform the largest temple to their god Jupiter that was ever built in the Roman Empire, and it's fifteen hundred miles from Rome. So it had to have some significance to the Romans, even though they claimed they they put together they didn't. Mm-hmm. That's the physical evidence that I go for. This okay, is the way my mind works. Yeah, I want to get more into this in some of these ancient historical sites, but just to kind of get a little background on the Anunnaki, um, they uh, does that word come from the Sumerians and uh, uh, Zechariah's work? And, no. Uh, okay. To answer your question, the way that word came about is in the translation from the cuneiform tablets at the time of the Sumerians, which was the first civilization. And that's a pretty amazing civilization, 9,000, 6,000 to 9,000 years old. Mm-hmm. They had all the first. They had writing, they had music, they had philosophy, they had astronomy, astrology, uh, you know, the wheel. So for a civilization to come out of the earth and arrive with all of these things is impossible in the sense of archaeological time frames. It just doesn't happen anyplace else. We've seen that. So they said in their writings in the Cuneiform Tales that everything we have was given to us by the Anunnaki. Now, the king of the Anunnaki's was Anu, A-N-U. And I think that's why they got their name Anunnaki, the followers of this king, Anu. Anyway, the stories are voluminous. Uh, Of all the 300,000 cuneiform tablets that have been discovered, 120,000 of them being in the British Museum, along with the cylinder seals, Zechariah translated 2,000 of the scientific ones, the ones that weren't just, you know, trade documents and storage and hello, how are you, this kind of stuff. These were the scientific ones. And I think that database gives us, gives me the background on which I base all of my research and my future writings about who they were, when they came here, and what they did according to what they said. Mm-hmm. You have to take that with uh, kind of a eye under the, the words and see what they, if it really was a, what they meant. So who were they, and when and why did they come here? Okay, <clears throat> the stories from the database, cuneiform tablets, are that they 
came from the planet Nibiru, which was captured. It was a uh, rogue planet that was free-floating in this outer space and came by our solar system, was captured by Neptune's gravity, brought into our system in clockwise fashion, made contact with Earth by one of its moons, split Earth in half. It was the fourth planet, became the third planet. Zechariah explains all of this in his literature. And then went off on a 3,600-year orbit, way out past Pluto, and then back every 3,600 years. And the story was the reason that they came here was that they had an ozone leak. You see, if you're a, a spaceship, you have contained in your spaceship all the necessary uh, life support systems. Well, a planet's life support system is its atmosphere. Our atmosphere protects us from what's outside of us, which is brutal. You know, if you go outside <clears throat> our atmosphere, you're cooked if you don't have the proper equipment. So they had done some terrible things on their planet through their history, as they said, and they created an ozone leak, a huge ozone leak in their atmosphere, and they were losing their atmosphere, and that meant if they lost their atmosphere, their civilization was gone. So they were trying to close the ozone leak, and what they found finally after many, many experiments and trials and tribulations was that gold flaked and put up in the atmosphere would close and heal the ozone leak. Well, they didn't have enough gold and have very little gold, so they did a survey of the solar system, found Earth, had most of the gold, came here with the sole purpose of mining our gold and sending it back to their home planet to save their planet. That was the story. Closed the ozone leaks into the 400,000 years they came here, they mined their gold in many fashions, and then uh, things happened. The story goes on. But you asked me what was the purpose of them coming here. Their purpose was to save their planet mm -hmm. from the ozone leak. And um, so did they get enough gold and they left? Or uh... Well, that's a good question. I think that they uh, they had gold, but they were mined. They, they tried first to mine it out of the uh, Persian Gulf, the, the floor. The Tigris and Euphrates rivers was sucking the gold out of the Turkish mountains bring it down and dumping it into the Persian Gulf. And they sucked it up with some kind of a vacuum system, and they separated it all out, and they got a bunch of other stuff besides gold, but they got very little gold that way, and it was inefficient. So what they did was they did a survey, and they found South Africa. They found the gold mines in South Africa. I mean, they found the gold veins, and they went down there, and they started mining it underground. Now, the gold there is like maybe a mile and a half, two miles under the surface of the earth, and it's pretty miserable conditions. Even today, it's miserable to mine the deep gold there. But that's where they did, <clears throat> until the story was they had a mutiny. Their Anunnaki heroes, their workers, were fed up with uh, this sort of thing, and they said, we're not going to do it anymore, and one thing led to another, and they went to the Grand Council to get permission to alter the species that was on the planet at that time called Homo erectus was a creature, looked like us, uh, walked on two legs, but it had no vocal cords. They couldn't speak, and they only had a third the brain size of ours. So what happened was that they, through many uh, various experiments, finally took the DNA, uh, they took the female egg of the Homo erectus, they scooped out the nucleus, they put their DNA in the center, and they planted it in one of their birth mothers. And there's a, a cylinder seal that shows, Eureka, we have created it. Adamu, the first man, came about in that fashion. It was a clone job, according to the story. <laughs> and uh, from there, uh, the story proceeds, 
and uh, the mining went on, and then the flood came about 11,500 years ago, and the flood uh, buried the African gold mine shafts so they were unoperable, so they went to the New World at Lake Titicaca and started the thing all over again, and they discovered new ways of, of mining gold. And my theory, my new theory in the uh, Anunnaki were here was that they built all of these iconic monuments to separate placer water Take the gold. Gold is 19 times heavier than water. So if you pour it over a surface like a washboard, that's what we do, and the gold bangs out and goes in the crevices. Well, uh, step pyramids to me look like washboards. So I theorize that they used these huge, numerous, numerous uh, step pyramids all over Mesoamerica to separate the gold. Now, the question is, did they leave? Why did they leave? Did they have enough gold? Those are all excellent questions. I don't claim to have the answers. I just have speculations about what I think. First of all, they were giants. The Anunnaki, according to the research that I've done and the stories that were written in the cuneiform, were over nine feet tall. So the answer to the first question, obviously, if they were still here, we'd see them. You know, guys walking around who are nine feet tall are very obvious. They can't hide within our human uh, species, which is gained from five and a half feet up to seven feet now, some of our basketball players. But still, they were giants. And, and you can verify that, at least I have in my research, by the stairways that were built on these icons are all 12-inch steps. And if you ever climb Chichen Itza, which I did many years ago, it's almost impossible. You lose your orientation. You're off balance. You have to climb on all fours. And when you come back down, it's impossible to walk down 12-inch steps. You have to sit on your butt and bump your way down. Well, if we find these 12-inch stairways all over these icons, it makes sense to me that a species that was taller than we were, larger than we were, nine feet tall, could probably handle 12-inch steps. So that's one of the clues. And the other thing is that they were told in the stories that they'd been here so long on our planet that if they went home to Nibiru, they would die. They they'd adjusted to our rhythms, to our gravity, and to our heat cycle. So they had a mothership. And what my theory is that the mothership, which was used circling, orbiting Earth all the time, uh, they probably left to the mothership and took off and are maybe now orbiting, say, Mercury. Uh, NASA had some pictures just recently. I don't know if you're familiar with that. The sun kind of lit up. and uh, They were photographing Mars at the time, and as the rays of the sun lit up Mars, they found this object, huge object orbiting Mercury. And first they said it was an object. Then they said it was a shadow, you know, how NASA covers things up. So they, they covered that up, and uh, I was interviewed on Coast to Coast about that by George Norrie, and I said, George... Uh, you know, we've seen many, many, many uh, cover-ups by our government on this story of the UFOs and the ancient aliens. Uh, I think that's where the mothership may be hanging out, and it's not too far and not too easy and not at all difficult to come from Mars back to Earth if they wanted to. So that's my answer. Mm-hmm. Gotcha. So um, let's see, a couple of questions from that. Why... Would do you think they they chose Earth out of all the places to mine? Um, uh, we had the gold. I mean, mm -hmm. if you, look, you look at all the nine planets. Well, there are nine. I, I don't agree with Pluto being degraded 
<clears throat> there's no obvious uh, gold or easily obtainable gold from those planets. Uh, Earth is one of the rock planets, you know, the inner planets that you can land on and do things. And by the way, Mars did have an atmosphere and it was used as a way station by the Anunnaki because they could ship the gold to Mars and then transport it back to Nibiru more easily than to go directly from Earth to, to Nibiru. And the atmosphere, they will eventually discover, if they haven't already and they're covering that up, that Mars was a way station. It had an atmosphere, it had water, and there are going to be artifacts there that uh, will prove that the Anunnaki used it as a way station. So these ancient sites, uh, if they were here for 450,000 years, do you think some of these sites are much, much, much older? Yes. Yes. In the, in the, in the last page of the first publication of the Anunnaki were here, I reproduce an equator uh, picture. Have you seen that? I don't think so, no. All right. At the end of the book, you'll see uh, one page. And it shows the, what the equator, the equator keeps shifting on planet Earth every thousands of years. And there's a guy who I used his technology. He did a reverse uh, study of it, and he reproduced the equator of the planet 84,000 to 120,000 years ago. And interesting enough, I found five of the icons on that equator 84,000 plus years ago. So to answer your question, yes, I think some of these icons are a lot older than, than uh, we're being told they are. For instance, there's been a recent study about the Sphinx. Are you up on that one? Mm -hmm. The water erosion, they figured, was the time when that part of the world was having rain was 10,500 years ago. And since there's evidence of water erosion on the Sphinx, they think, well, it must have been built at that time. And if the Sphinx was built 10,500 years ago, the pyramids must have been built 10,500 years ago. And ergo, there were no Egyptians 10,500 years ago, if that's when they were built. Mm -hmm. When well, do you think they were built? I don't know. I know they're older than 10,500 years. Mm -hmm. I know that the Baalbek landing platform, which I mentioned earlier to you, survived the flood. They know in the story of uh, Epic of Gilgamesh, when they came back down and recoined themselves with Noah's children, I mean with Enki's children, they went around and looked and the only thing that survived is like, can you imagine the earth covered with 10 feet of mud? Mm -hmm. I'm not 10 feet, 10 miles of mud. That's a thousand-foot tsunami created a depth of mud that was unbelievable, buried everything. But the one thing that survived was the landing platform. They went and found it. And since it survived the flood, it's got to be older than, say, 11,500 years. So I think our timelines are, have to be questioned mm -hmm. part of the research, and I'm doing both that. So if and if they were here four hundred and fifty thousand years, do you think any of these sites are maybe fifty, a hundred, two hundred thousand years old? Yeah. I think that the um Zugaruts in Mesopotamia, you know, the original uh <clears throat> mining operation started in the Persian Gulf and then they worked they went on land and, and found the first settlement at uh slips my mind, but anyway it's a famous uh, ancient Sumerian civilization which is the first civilization. And then they went up the river and started mining it in this placer fashion. And the Zugarud at Nippur, Nipperu, uh, looks to me like it was a gold mining stairways, the long stairways we used to bang the gold out. So that must have happened early on. And we really don't know how old some of these things are. Now, there's some 
circles in Africa, stone circles that Michael Tillinger has uncovered and talked a lot about. I think these uh, were gold mining operations also. They're surface stonework in a circular uh, form that they don't know how old they are. This is a question. You know, it's stone, you cannot carbon date stone. There's no way to tell how old stone is. And I believe that the Anunnaki, and this is, uh, I'm going to, at my workshop at Contact in the Desert, uh, for all those who want to come to that, I will be demonstrating and explaining <clears throat> what I call the vastly superior stone architecture of the Anunnaki. The way they built things out of stone, which is the most available material to build with on our planet, as we're a stone or a rock, uh, has a certain signature. And I'm going to be pointing out in my workshop how all of the things that I've discovered have this signature, and that it's an incredible way to build out of stone, and we can't do it. And the local folks who have been given the credit, Stonehenge is given the credit by the folks on the Salisbury Plain. The Egyptians are being given credit for the pyramids. The Incas are being given credit for Machu Picchu. All of this history needs to be examined in the light of what I'm talking about, what I've discovered, and that the scientific community will eventually have to acknowledge that the Anunnaki were here, because that's the explanation that ties everything together. Uh, this is a physical way to prove it, and that's, that's my track. That's why I sent you that uh, uh, sizzle reel. That documentary is going to go further into it. I've made these uh, forays out, but we haven't taken the camera with us, so when we raise some money to finish the uh, sizzle reel, which is the documentary, the Anunnaki were here, we're looking for an executive producer, which if you in your audience happen to have anybody interested in helping us with that, we'll be very delighted to talk with anyone. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, so do you think they may come back? Yeah. Mm-hmm. I, I, I don't see why. I mean... We are so close to screwing up <clears throat> that Enki, who was the father of, uh, I think, humanity because he was involved in the cloning experiment, and also he was involved in the flood to save humanity when Enlil, the, uh, the commander-in-chief, said, let them all go, they're too noisy, they're diluting our bloodline, etc. He has a vested interest in, in preserving what's happening here on Earth, and it looks like we're going to... Uh, destroy ourselves, I think they will come back and I think it's very possible scientifically that they could neutralize all our atomic weapons, just make us, you know, go back 100 years or 50 years and start over again. Because warfare is is destructive, it's non-productive, and uh, it might be that they or other species in the galaxies of the universe think we're a dangerous species, that we are so warlike that they don't want to have anything to do with us. Maybe many of them would like to see us gone. But I think that Enki, who uh, has a vested interest in us, would come back at the, at the crucial point, I hope, and save us from ourselves. Do you think that um, they're monitoring us then? Mm-hmm. Yes, to answer your question, I think that the, it's obvious that many of the UFO sightings have to be parts of the Anunnaki. I don't think they're the only space age civilization out there. Uh, I write about them because they, it's the only record we have that's written that gives kind of a full database about what one 
extraterrestrial civilization was able to do when they came here. I think we're like a 7-Eleven. Lots of folks stop in, look around, and go away. So many of these UFOs could be from other civilizations. But I think, yes, the Anunnaki are observing us, and yes, I think they, uh, if Enki is in control, would be interested in, in saving us. Mm-hmm. And so, how how long ago do you think they left? <clears throat> I think the last exhibit that I've been able to... I'm, I'm doing a study right now on religion. And the most recent religion that I think is connected to them is Islam. And that's about 600 AD. It started with Muhammad. And I think that uh, Allah may have been one of the Anunnaki's. And I, I go into that. I haven't published anything on that, but that's where my current uh, research is going. So if they were still here, uh, 600 AD, uh, Zachariah thinks they left earlier than that. He thinks that there was, uh, you know, the atomic war that happened in the Sinai Desert, which was 4,034 years ago. Uh, was a disaster, and there's all kinds of things that happened because of that. And I go into that in some of my writings and research. But I can't tell you exactly when they left, but I, I can say that the evidence of them having been here as far back as uh, 600 A.D. Mm-hmm. with the founding of the Islamic religion. Right. And currently you believe uh, they're they're still in the solar system, um, do you know or have any idea of what they're up to? Well, if indeed they are on the mothership, which was here during their uh, colonization of Earth, it had to be a, a base station in order to do what they did. And if they all retreated to the mothership and left and are hanging out, say, orbiting Mercury, uh, they're waiting. They're doing their thing and uh, observing us. I mean, all mm-hmm. of these UFO sightings could be, possibly be, um, there could be a base, some people think, on the moon, Phobos, of, of uh, Mars. The Russians have some evidence that one of their uh, satellites was destroyed by a local population on Mars. I mean, there are all kinds of things you can conjure up. I am a tire kicker. I'm the kind of researcher who wants to have evidence I can put my hands on, study it, take it apart, put it back together and say, okay, this is what I think. A lot of theories have a lot of myths in them, a lot of uh, mythology, and some of it's speculation, and some people claim that they have had past life regressions through hypnotherapy, and they've talked to these various other space-age entities. I don't have any proof of that. I mean, my daughter's a hypnotherapist, Jen Garfield. She lives in um, Santa Fe, New Mexico. And she's got quite a following because she does very good work. But um, she believes in the star people, the light people. And, you know, I have no proof of that. Mm-hmm. But I listen to her. Yeah. I'm, I'm a father, and I listen to what she tells me, and I, you know, try to compute it. But to answer your question, uh, I don't know when they left. I don't know when they're coming back. I know that their planet, uh, Zachary and I kind of agreed that it's maybe 1,500, 1,600 years out on its 3,600-year 3, orbit. So in our lifetimes, yours and mine, we're not going to see Nibiru. Mm-hmm. And do you think they're they're involved in any way in our current politics or religious uh, activity? 
No, I I, uh, I know that they brought religion to the planet. They, they brought kingship and religion as a means of control. Uh, those systems, both of which they controlled, uh, are a way for a minority to take charge of a vast number of, of other citizens. So that's that's very possible that that was why they instigated kingship and, and religion. Uh, whether they're actively involved today in any of that, like some of these conspiracy theories I hear about, um, I can't say. I, I have no no evidence of that. Mm-hmm. I need them. Speaking of evidence, what do you think? What do you feel is your uh, or is the best evidence to demonstrate uh, your theories? Okay, us, you and me. Mm-hmm. The most me? Mag- the most magnificent <laughs> creation that is attributed to the Anunnaki are humans, the human species. If you look at the uh, anthropological and archaeological history of evolution, Homo erectus was evolving for a million eight hundred thousand years, and the most advanced tool making they got to in that length of time were spears and stones and fire. We, in, if we arrived, in the skeletal, first skeletal remains of us in Southeast Africa are 200,000 years old. In the 200,000-year time frame, we're walking on the moon. Now, that doesn't happen, A, in evolution, something mysterious happened. And if we evolved directly from Homo erectus, there would be skeletal remains of all the species in between Homo erectus and Homo sapiens would show that we came directly by evolution. There are no skeletal remains. It's a missing link. That's why I called my first book, Adam, the Missing Link. I think Adam was the first Homo sapien, and he was cloned. Now, I would like to have people disprove me on that. I mean, uh, and Zechariah always, I mean, it was his theory, not mine. Uh, my theory is that uh, we are a young species on this planet. We're the dominant species on this planet. We're advancing by the DNA. You see, if this cloning process took their DNA and put it into the egg of the Homo erectus and put it into a female Anunnaki and birthed Adam. We humans all share the same DNA. We are all brothers under the skin. Things happened after Adam that uh, there was a species called Homo sapiens sapien, which is an upgrade of Homo sapiens, and that's another story. But <clears throat> again, that was an infusion of more Anunnaki DNA which I think is now coming out in our brains. Our brains are evolving much more rapidly than uh, any other parts of our body, and we're discovering things, and we eventually are going to inherit uh, the technology that was theirs. And I have people that interview me and ask me the question, he says, um, uh, do they look like us? I say, no, we look like them. We Mm -hmm. are. That's my answer. So Mm -hmm. the greatest proof that I can give you of interference by a space-age technology is us, humans. Besides all the stone things that are secondary to my thesis and my new theory, we are the evidence that they were here. Mm -hmm. Earlier, uh, at the beginning of of our talk today, uh, you had mentioned where we're at this tipping point, where we might not make it (laughs) past the next few years or so. Do you think they, uh, if it's looking like we're not going to make it, that they would come in and uh, and get involved in any way? I hope so. Mm-hmm. No, I can't tell you with certainty that that's what's going to happen, but we're making a mess of things, my friend. We are a species that is a, a god in ruins, 
I heard that phrase years ago that man is a god in ruins. Mm -hmm. And uh, we aren't, you know, we haven't solved our diseases. Well, apparently, for, for them to live as long as they, they did or do, immortality is only available if you cure all the diseases in your body. You don't die of old age, you die of disease. Something gets your heart, something gets your lungs, something gets, you know. In the Bible, there's records of guys living 900 years. And the giants of old who had more DNA since they were, you know, higher grade uh, half-breeds than us, um, they had the ability to fight off diseases. Their immune systems were much stronger than ours. We are medically learning how to uh, replace our organs and do all kinds of things that prolong our life. We have prolonged the life. Humans only used to live about 35 years. Mm -hmm. Now we're living to 100, you know. Uh, I think that uh, we have the science and the ability to attack the diseases that are killing us and maybe create immortality. And there might be some genetic manipulations that we could do. You know, we didn't get the full deck. We only got part of it. Mm -hmm. So that if we, uh, there are experiments going on now trying to create astronauts that will live 500 years. Uh, that's an interesting uh, program being done up in Berkeley. But... I might sound like I'm going off your subject back and forth, but when I think about these questions that you ask, my mind kind of kicks into a, a, a gear of telling you everything I know mm -hmm. and what I believe. But there are certain things I don't know and there are certain things I can't answer because it's like Pauling said, if you want to believe in God, please do, because we don't know what created the universe. Right. No, right on topic. So... um Great. So you're going to be at Contact in the Desert in a few weeks, and then people can go to Amazon and find uh, your books there. Actually, actually, it's cheaper. My books are now been reduced on my webpage. So I'd okay, like great. Go to my webpage to get a better deal. Great. And that's adamthemissinglink.com. A D A M T A G M I S S I N G L I N K dot com. Adam, and you'll find there page one, which tells a little bit about me, but you go to page two and you'll see the three books and descriptions of them and the various formats you can acquire them in. Great. And they can also see your teaser for your documentary uh, yep. that you're working on, which looks really interesting, very well produced. And uh, hopefully Thank someone you. will go visit your website after they hear the show and decide, hey, I'm going to executive produce this thing. I like that. <laughs> I hope, and I hope that um, when this is um, uh, aired, which you say is next Monday. Yeah. Okay. Uh, I can go to your web page and pick it up there. Yes, I will send you a link. Okay, and if I could publish that on my uh, Facebook page, I'd be happy to do that to Great. Use your logo and so forth, so we can help each other. All right. Great. Well, thank you so much for being on the show. It was uh, very interesting. Well, thank you for inviting me, and like I say, uh, I'm available. I am kind of the senior age-wise in this group. In fact, uh, Zachariah was only seven years older than I am. Oh, wow. So um, I'm looking for a, another person to take over after I'm gone to be the uh, disciple to carry on Zachariah's work, because I think he had the Rosetta Stone. I think he understood uh, cosmology, he understood the uh, translations, he understood the theories, and he was a biblical scholar, so he put the two together, 
and his works are magnificent. I'd recommend them to anybody that would like the challenge of reading them, but if they want an easy way to get the information, they come to my webpage, and my books are pretty pretty easy to read. All right, great, thanks. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much, Mr. Cryfield. That was really interesting. If anybody wants to go read some more, like he said, you can go to adamthemissinglink.com, adamthemissinglink.com. And then if you want to go see him at Contact in the Desert, you just go to contactinthedesert.net. Um, so it's a .net on that one. You could just Google Contact in the Desert, too, and you're going to find it. And that's August 9th through the 11th at the Joshua Tree Retreat Center. So again, out in the desert, everything is going on out in the desert. And for our latest desert adventure in Roswell, check out our Facebook and our tweets and openminds.tv for the latest news and a lot of uh, information on what we're up to and, of course, the latest UFO news, including the news we talked about earlier. And if you like video format um check out open or check out the spacing out web series of course where we go over ufo news and we're always pasting, posting cool stuff on our, our youtube um we've got a new video going up today so go check that out i also want to thank the people who do our music so again thank you to caleb hanks and to two earth minics for our awesome opening and close music which i love to death you get to enjoy two earth minutes Close music in just a second. Adios, muchachos. Join us next week, and we'll talk to you later, people.